We are in the middle of a massive story. So if you've rocked up for the first time tonight, and I think there's a few people who are here for the first time tonight, really sorry, you kind of come in halfway through the plot, but we are in the middle of actually unpacking the whole story of the whole Bible over 10 weeks so that you get the vibe of what the whole thing's doing, and at the end of it, God willing, we'll be able to say, ah, that's what it's all about. That's kind of simple. It makes sense. I get it. So hopefully it won't take long to pick up. Uh, We are sort of kind of in the middle. We've already had God making the world and making it beautiful and loving to bless people. Humanity not trusting him so much. A whole lot of toing and froing, but eventually God saving a particular people group out of uh, a slavery situation and saying, right, you guys, if you can just trust me, if you can just trust me, I'm going to use you to fix up the problems of the whole world. So every human on earth I care about, but I'm going to use you, this group, this people called Israel, I'm going to use you to to, to do that, to bring about blessing back to everyone. Now, if you remember last week, there's a bloke named Moses. He's the sort of the whole Prince of Egypt fame, Exodus fame, and he gave them a sermon right on the edge of the land saying, guys, don't blow it. Don't blow it. You're about to go into this new place to be with God. Please don't blow it. Moses then dies and God's people enter this land under Joshua's leadership. Now, after a period of time under some sort of random sporadic rulers called judges, Israel asks their last judge, a bloke named Samuel, for a king. And thus, tonight begins the, uh, the chapter of the Bible story of the world, the era of the kings. It has kings, it has queens, it has princes, it has princesses, it has knights, it has swords, it has giants, it has battles, it has betrayal, it has adultery, it has wizards, it has prophets, it has coups, it has miracles, it has murders, it has marriages, it has ghosts, and it has gods. Game of Thrones is a little golden book in comparison, and I'm not even joking to the content of this section. We're going we're gonna to have to fly through it, but that's going to be really, really interesting for us. Now, to to, to just to give you some things to latch on to. Remember, this is a complex book. We're looking at the Bible, and, and I, I've been feeling it through the week with my growth group, the, 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 the sort of difference between our culture and it. So whenever you read a book from a different culture, it's hard to connect with it. But if we look at its plot through the lens of these three main storylines that it has, I think that's going to help us to see what God is doing in it. So just a reminder, it's an adventure story. First of all, will humanity, this humanity that God's made, ever rule this world wisely? Take care of it as it should, conquer it. Um, secondly, it's, it's a romantic comedy. Keep that in mind. The big question, the tension of this is, is the guy and the girl ever going to get back together? We really want that. Will God and humanity be together? And of course, there's also this good versus evil story, as we saw that there's someone who doesn't want God and humanity to be reunited. Will God be able to defeat the forces of evil? Now, these are actually, if you stop and think about it, not just in terms of the Bible, these are actually existential questions for every human being. Am I actually going to be able to run my life in a competent way that blesses the people around me, or am I not? Am I going to have any connection with the divine? Do I have any spirituality that's within me? And will actually the evil that's in me actually end up winning? Because I mess things up a lot. Will I ever be okay? So keep that in mind, and we'll be able to understand what God is up to, and we'll be able to understand all the stories we read in the Bible, but most importantly, we'll understand God, what He is like towards us, and even actually understand ourselves better. 
Now, the, the idea of this actually is, I'm going I'm to make this little promise. At the end of this series, I'm going to stand up here and you guys are going to throw every difficult to understand passage in the Bible that you can think of at me. And then I'm going to ask all of you guys to help me solve it <laughs> rather than me doing it. And what we'll do as those come out, what we might do is stop and think, hold on. Okay, so how, what, what on earth is that little weird bit of the Bible about? Why is it there? And maybe using the tools that we learn in this, actually together as a congregation, we'll be able to not rely on the past, but actually we'll actually have the tools to answer those questions. What, what, is, that chap- what is that weird chapter about? And we'll realize, ah, that's actually just the rom-com bit. Okay. So just letting you know, that's where we're going to get to. So start thinking of your passages that you're like, ooh, what on earth is that? The weirder, the better. All right, let's get to the kings. Okay, we are at the kings. Uh, we have a bit of a false start with the first king, Saul. You see, God said that he was supposed to be the king that fights Israel's battles for them. Yet, as we, um, as we sort of uh, know from the story, um, God actually does let them have their king. We heard about King David talking to God in that, in that reading. So first up, a first king off of the bat, which we sort of su- might be surprised God even let them have, is the impressive Saul. Now Saul is your classic big guy, your classic tall guy, your classic visually, he looks like he's an alpha male. So with all the insecurities that come with that, right? <laughs> and when he gets scared, Saul loses his head and forgets about the power of his God. But then there's also this young guy, David, on the scene. You might have heard of him from David and Goliath fame. And David is a very different soul to Saul in this important sense because when the heat is on, David for some reason just absolutely trusts God to win his battles for him. You heard it even in the reading. He trusted God to help him protect his sheep when he was a boy. He was a shepherd. And then when he becomes this this sort of pseudo-knight while still a youth, by trusting God to defeat Goliath for him. And so as he goes on, he wins just about every battle that he fights this guy. And this makes King Saul go classic paranoid dictator. Because he's successful. What else could he have but take my kingship away from me? So for years, he hunts down David, trying to kill him. But David doesn't lose his trust in his God. And God saves him in adventure after adventure. So in time, David succeeds Saul as the king of all Israel. Now, with a background like that, what kind of king do you reckon David is? Like, stop and think about it. What has David been doing? What does he know how to do? He knows how to trust God to win fights. (laughs) And so that's what he keeps on doing. He goes around beating people up. He sets his sight on Jerusalem, this place God has said, this is the place that that, that, that you are going to worship me at. And he storms it and he takes it. And then whenever a tribe comes in to threaten his people, he takes his mighty men and goes and smashes that, that, uh, that attack and defends the people. And so by sword and by faith in God, David gives Israel peace on all sides, which is kind of now a little bit boring for a guy who is a fighter, right? Like it's done. There's peace in the land. There's nothing left to do. So David does what any Hobartian with a spare couple of million bucks would do. He builds himself a house. And no Hobartian without a spare couple of million bucks will do, right? So once the Renos are done, David's all excited, but then he's got nothing to do again. And so he realizes that God's like the rest of Hobart. He's living in a tent. Why should David have a palace when God doesn't? Now, that's a nice gesture from David, but I want to I just, it seems like a good thing, right? But I just want to give you an analogy to, to help you see maybe it's not. You see, that would actually be like me trying to give someone whose last name is Griggs a lesson in farming apples. Okay, I'm a city boy. 
When it comes to farming, my help is not what Lucaston Park Orchards needs, right? They provide me with apples. The relationship is much better when we each know our place. The apples are better off, I'm better off. So a city boy like me needs to know his place better. And God's response to David is kind of like that. His response is basically, read the story better, David. His response to David has these three parts. First of all, hey, did I ask you for the house? You know when people try to do nice things for you and you haven't asked for them and they kind of don't always work? Did, did, did I ask for a house? I never have. And secondly, the house that you're living in, I gave you. I'm the one who rescued you from all of these dangers. I'm the one you put your trust in. And like, why would you think that it works that you need to give me one? David, recognize the situation here. I'm the blesser. You are the truster. But then thirdly, he says, I, don't just, I just don't want you to think that me telling you no means I don't love you. Because remember, I'm the blesser. I'm going to do that again. In fact, I am going to build you a house. It doesn't mean a physical house. He means a dynasty. He's a, you're a king, and I am going to give you a dynasty. And so God covenants with David, gets into this, this, he binds himself to an agreement with David. doesn't have to, but he chooses to. That one of David's descendants will rule God's people forever. And God's people will live happily again. He'll even build a temple, a place where God and humanity can hang out again and be together again. You see, Yahweh doesn't want David to blow it. His God wants him to, 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 to understand how life in the Garden of Canaan works. It's the same as in the Garden of Eden it was. God's the generous provider. And here he is giving again. Like in the, in, the, in the metaphor of the romantic comedy, this is the guy being generous. This is the guy, oh no, I didn't put Richard Gere in. I always do that. Yeah, yeah Richard Gere with the, with the flowers, pretty woman. Anyway, he, he's the guy coming with the chocolates. He's the guy coming with the flowers. He is, he is the blesser. He is the romantic one in this relationship. He's the initiator. And God says, hey, remember, that's how it works. And I'm cool with that. I like being that. Now, in time, David dies and his son Solomon becomes king. And famously, God comes to Solomon in a dream and offers him, hey, I will give you whatever you want. And Solomon, very wisely, doesn't request wealth, power, or women, but it requests wisdom to rule God's people well. And this goes down very well with God. God not only gives Solomon the wisdom he asked for, but also the money and the other blessings that he didn't ask for, that he was willing to give up. Solomon actually becomes the, the thought leader of the ancient world, like the most influential influencer on all of TikTok. This, this guy, is he wrote proverbs in the thousands and songs in the hundreds. Kings and queens come from the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom, to see his glory, to see his riches. You've got people who aren't sure that it's worth coming to, um, uh, where are I, where are I, where are I? Oh, no, I did put it in there, I just missed it. There we go. We've got people coming. So the Queen of Sheba, she, she's a queen from probably Ethiopia, we're guessing. She's the ruler there, and she's like, ah, is it worth going to see this guy? Everyone's talking him up. And she leaves saying, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe what they told me, and yet now I see that what they told me wasn't enough. This is crazy. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials are continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God. I've just seen something, that a community, a lifestyle that I didn't think existed. Man, your God must be good to you. 
Now, under Solomon, what was, that, that's the rich and the famous. Like you'd think, okay, that's the law courts. That's, that's, that's where the, the, the kings live. But, but what about the average person? I mean, what's the average person's life like? Well, 1 Kings 4.20, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's top to bottom, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. These people can afford property. They got a place. They got a garden. Talk about lifestyle. This is it. In fact, actually, stop and think about it. This is the the plot of those three stories. This is it. This is everything. Is there anything that's not been fulfilled? Is there there any part of the story that's bad? God's there with Solomon. They're they're obviously tight. Uh, The blessings are coming to everyone. Blessings are coming to the whole world through him. They're at peace in God's place. God's people have been fruitful and multiplied. That's from the start. They're, They're being a blessing to the whole world. David's son is king, as he promised to David. He's given them peace and prosperity. This is... Whew. This is everything. Can you imagine living in that world, in that moment in time in history? What an incredible space to be. You're not scared of anything. There's no global anxiety. Solomon's made peace, uh, political or military, with everyone in the whole world, and, and they're looking to, to your country to tell them how to do things. We don't even have time to mention a tenth of the wealth that Solomon had. This is just, it does not get any better than this. This is the high point of the whole Bible, at least the Old Testament. Because unfortunately, it's not the only side of the story. I, I'm sorry, I skipped some bits. A few juicy little bits. Just some hints that are woven through the chapters that the storytellers have woven in so that not all is as it should be. Sure, all the external enemies are defeated, but there is an evil that hasn't been defeated yet that lurks inside. Start with the story. Story of a guy named David. So we're back in going back a king. So Solomon's dad, David, we're still back there. Now, aside from all the good that he did, David also did something not so good. David slept with his best mate's wife. Now, while Uriah, his mate, was away fighting a war for David, David sends soldiers to bring Bathsheba, his good-looking wife, to him. Now, the power differential between these two makes it impossible to know if any consent that was there was real. And so, when she sends David a message later that she's pregnant, David tries to cover his tracks by sending Uriah home. I have some leave. So you've done such a good job in fighting. Now, Uriah refuses to dishonor his brothers in the field by doing this. He says, no, I won't do that. What a contrast of honor. Uriah, by the way, is a foreigner, even. The, the, the reversal of what, of what the, the stereotypes of honor is, is, is clear. Now, David then, in, in, in desperation, sends Uriah back to the war. Uriah holding in his hand his own execution order. Instructions to give to his commanding officer to ensure that Uriah is killed in the battle. See, from this moment in the kingdom, this is the moment when the rot started, when David looked at Bathsheba. I want you to see see that this is an old story as well. A story from 
back in the garden. When he saw that she was desirable, literally the same word as, the, as for the fruit, good. And he took what was not for him. Again, the same word. And he tried to put the responsibility for what had happened onto another. Tried to get Uriah to, to sleep with his wife so that he, he, the responsibility is not on him. And he ended up bringing death where there should be life. You see, this is the Garden of Eden all over again, which is what we were hoping for, what we wanted, but not in the good way. If you know this story, you're screaming internally, no, not this again. This is how everything went bad. People started dying at this point. This is how people started getting hurt. This is where the, the fights between the sexes got, got, became, began in the first place. When the, when the ones closest to God have been given everything only, to, and he says, look, if all, all you have to do is you only have to ask and I'll even give you more, is what God says to David when he calls into account for this sin. But David just can't trust God to give him what will satisfy his heart. So he goes elsewhere and he grasps for what God says is actually not good for him. You see, we, we've seen this before. This is the Garden of Eden. This, this is what brings death, not trusting God's goodness. And this is, this is what happens. It, it, the whole thing falls apart, right? Things get complicated between the children of David's various wives, plural, that he now has. And so one of his sons, Amnon, becomes infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. And when she resists his advances, he takes her anyway. Now, her full brother, Absalom, Sorry, this affects me a bit, so I've just got to compose myself again. Her full brother Absalom is furious because his dad, the king, does nothing about it. He does nothing. But how could he? He'd done the same thing, hadn't he? So what do you do if you're Absalom? What he does is he takes vengeance into his own hands and murders his brother, Amnon. Oh, and so, so dad now, now King David still does nothing. How could he? He's done the same thing too. Now when I say he does nothing, I don't mean he was merciful to his son Absalom. See, David doesn't bring Absalom to justice, but neither does he forgive him and restore him and allow him to enter the country again after he runs away. And what's the results of this absentee leadership? This, I've sinned so I can't actually act to bring it to, to restore sin. Well, civil war, more hurting of women, and more death. See, it flows through the generations. You see, Solomon followed in his father's footsteps too, but he actually took it a step further. You see, as Solomon got older... He took 700 wives by the, time he was, by the time he was done with it and 300 girlfriends. Solomon was gross. And what's more then, he built temples for all of their gods. Like, sure, he, he, he was, by the way, this is God's express instruction as a king. One of the few things you can't do, have many wives, don't do that. They'll turn your heart after other gods. Now, sure, he's the guy who built God's great temple in Jerusalem. But at the same time, if you just check the next little bit, just check the length of time he spends on each. Twice as long on his home renos as on the temple for God. 
see, the funny thing is, by the time Solomon dies, he's enslaved half of his own nation to staff his building projects. And instead of, instead of being like being in Eden, as it had been, the, the envy of the world, being under Solomon is the same as when they were slaves in Egypt, in anti-Eden. And so Solomon dies, the nation's a mess, and splits in two. Uh, Northern kingdom still calls itself Israel, and the southern kingdom calls itself Judah after the biggest tribe there. And this does not improve things between God and his people, by the way. So what happens is the northern king, uh, he is concerned about losing power to the south. Because if you think about it, right, all the religious festivals, they're supposed to go down to Jerusalem, okay? Where the religious power is, where the money from the tourism dollars flow, so will the political power. So he's not willing to trust God with that. So he sets up idols of other gods in Dan and Bethel, the north and the south of his country, so that his people can't worship their God who gave them this land that they live in because he's scared of losing his power. As a result, Israel worship every God that comes their way and God eventually does what he promised he would do if they were going to do that. And in the year 733 BC, he kicks them out of the land. Now, the southern kings, that southern tribe, they're, they're mostly no better. A few kings come along who, who lead their nation to say sorry to God and turn back to him, but, but it all goes wrong again soon enough. And, Israel, uh, and Judah are taken into exile in Babylon in 597 BC. Their line of kings, no more. And thus ends the era of the kings. That's it. God's people kicked out of home for the second time, never to rule themselves again. Well, 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 Wintrip, what does it mean for us? What, what, what are we going to learn from this? How, how do we see God working? And what does it mean in the, in the flow of the plot of this story? I think there's three things that I think we, we should draw out of this that we probably need to take pretty seriously. First one is uh, character flows, character flows downstream. Um, David's character flowed down through to his children. You see, if you, if you want to not pass on the parts of the parenting experience that you received onto your children that you didn't, you didn't think were so good, uh, it's going to take something other than just trying not to be like dad. See, Absalom tried to not be like dad. He didn't help the situation. He brought war to the nation. See, we can't help it. Our character flows downstream to those who watch us and to those whom we influence. This is the thing that I found most profound and yet the hardest to face of anything to do with being a parent. And it's true whoever you influence. That the most influential thing you ever give to the people you influence is just who you are. You see, you can learn techniques. You can learn to, to, to get them to sleep well. You can learn to sort of be a bit more consistent in the way that you, you do your discipline and all these things. But you, who you are, they see and will transmit. You can't, you can't see how it's happening, but it does. And so if you want to influence people for, for something good... You can't give them something you've not received. You can't, you can't take people where you've never been. You can't say, be like this, if you are not like this. 
your insecurities, you'll pass them on to your kids. You will. Your laziness, my laziness, I'll pass on to my kids. They'll see it. It'll confuse them. They might not be willing to talk about it, or they might, but it will. Your fear, even if you don't acknowledge it, will be passed on. The things that we don't even admit are true of ourselves, we don't know are true of ourselves, we don't have a choice. Character flows downstream. But also, of course, your spiritual health, your spiritual practices, your love for Jesus that's obvious in how you live your life, your need for Jesus that's obvious in how often you're asking him, Jesus, I really need you. Your love for Jesus that's obvious in how you talk about him. The fact that you take the time to help them understand him. How you help them understand life and reality in terms of him. See, we're not formed by texts that we read telling us what to believe. We're formed by what we love, we desire, and we pursue. And those who we follow, those who we admire, what they love and desire and pursue, whatever they say is true about what they love and desire to pursue. It's not what they say. It's what they actually do. So it doesn't matter how hard you work to put on a good show to do better. This is the thing. I can't escape who I am. Character flows downstream. Now, part of the problem with doing what we're doing, going through the Bible like this, trying not to give too many spoilers for the end, is that sometimes we don't answer all the questions, but we just raise them like this. Why not talk to someone near you after the service and talk about this? What, what, what does this little section of the talk right, raise up in your heart? What little anxiety or what thought did it right raise for you? Share it if you can. Find someone who's safe enough to share it with and talk through what impact that thing that was raised for you might have. Start a journey of honesty about it. All right, second thing, second thing that we can really pick up from this is that God is not unconditional love without justice. You see, God with his people, he's the giver. He's the blesser. He, he is, he's rocking up with, with flowers and chocolates. He is there with, with all the things that they need, but he's not crawling. When he's abused, he, he's not a pushover. He's, he, he's not a battered spouse who'll crawl back to his abuser no matter what treatment they dish out, no matter how unfaithful they are to him. Humanity has cheated on God. We've looked, we've looked to all sorts of things for the things that God should give us that aren't God. And he won't have that. And so, friends, I think it's worth taking a second to, to say that we underestimate the darker parts of our heart and the consequences that they have on our world on each other, on your relationships. You see, sin, the darkness in David and, and his family's heart, destroyed the jewel in the crown of humanity. The sin in our hearts topples politicians, does it not? How often do we see? Kings, influencers, and us. We break our world collectively and also just in lots of little ways with each other. We just do. Like it just is. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. It's just true. Just let's be honest. And if you're wondering why God seems far away, well, it's not because he wants to be distant from you, but doesn't wrongdoing just break and hurt relationship? So the love story here, the love story is not looking good. The romantic comedy, they've been kicked out, they've been kicked out, they're separated again a second time, God and humanity. Third thing here, is that it wasn't enough. God's promises, God's blessings, God anointed, God's anointed kings, God's, God's covenants, God even living with them in the temple was not enough. You see, uh, what do you think will make you happy? Like if you're stopping and thinking, okay, uh, I, think, I think everyone has this, something that they, 
something that they want to be saved from, and it might be from, say, from depression, say, from my ridiculous anxiety that just causes me so much problems, say, from my guilt, say, from... We all have a thing we want to be saved from and a thing that we're hoping will save us from it. And we might be switching from thing to thing as we go, but we've got a thing we want to be saved from and which something at the moment is on track to try and save from it. What's yours? Is it a relationship? Solomon tried a few of those. Is it financial security? Solomon literally ran the world. Is it the unmovable respect of your peers? If everyone rock solidly thought I was this good, would you then feel secure? Truly? It won't. If you have imposter syndrome now, that won't change it. There's nothing. See, the thing is, religion won't give this to you either. I'm sorry to tell you. Like, I don't know what you're here for this afternoon. We'll all have very different answers to that question, different stories. Spiritual fulfillment, some reminders. I just need someone to remind me to be a good boy, be a good girl. Uh, enough moral instruction that I'll have some insight into, into what's right and wrong. Maybe, maybe insight into my own psychology, something like that. Uh, we can see here it won't work. You need something more than that. You need something more than a bit of help, a bit of information, a bit of blessing, a little bit of extra money, a little bit of support, a little bit of a network. One of the wisest men the world's ever known with all the spiritual wisdom and insight a man can have, all the information necessary. He's got personal access to God. He's had personal conversations with God. He's had God say, I'll give you all the wisdom that there is to have. He's got the world at his fingertips with all his material needs sorted. He's got no money worries. He's got all the time in the world and his heart went so badly astray. More of any of these things will not save you. No matter what it is that you think you need saving from. The point of this story, we're at the end. The point of this story is that we need more than that. We need the one who comes at the end of this story. Now look, if if you belong to Jesus, what is it that's just distracting you from your communion with him, your focus on him, What's the thing that promises to just make life a little bit better? That when you stop and think about it, you think, why on earth would I focus on that if I could focus on my communion and my my connection with Jesus? What's that thing? Fast from it. Cut it out for a while. And instead, use that time to spend with Him. Because I guarantee it's a better investment. Secondly, if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you're, starting, and you're the kind of person who's like, oh, I don't know who this person is that he's talking about, so it's very nice for him to say that Jesus does these things that other, thing, other things don't. Can I ask you, please, can you come back the next few weeks? Because we're about to unpack the climax of the whole Bible story, and we're going to meet the one who is able to solve the world's deepest problems. And hopefully, as we see how the Bible unpacks that, you'll get a little bit of confidence, a little bit of a sense of why and how it is that he's actually able to do the thing that David couldn't do to keep his family together and his relationships together and that Solomon couldn't do to keep himself sorted or his kingdom together because he can. I'm going to lead us in prayer now. I hope you'll join me. Heavenly Father, I guess we do sort of live in a... I guess it doesn't feel like it's so much right at this instant, but across history we live in a golden age. I mean, the things we can do, the information that we have at our fingertips, it feels like the blessings of the wisest people in the world flow out to us and are accessible to us in seconds. 
we're pretty well off. We have so many needs met. And yet in our, in our world, in our city, just like in Solomon's, it's clear that the, the brokenness of human hearts and our relationships and our minds and our attitudes and our actions, uh, it, does, it does flow through and it does bring destruction and it does break relationships. God, you promise that you don't need us to sort things out for you, that you don't need us to get ourselves sorted for you, but that you are the God who sorts things out for us. That you didn't need David to build you a house. You were going to sort his house out for him. And Father, I just ask that tonight as, as we talk to each other about the things that this has raised for us, that we'd be honest about, the, about those things. And Lord, that if we have the courage to talk to you, to pray tonight, that Lord, you'd meet us there. And that we'd experience in that engagement with you as we speak to you and ask you to be the giver of good things, the giver back of the, the, the key to our soul. Lord, that you, might, that you might answer as you promise that you delight to. That you would give us the blessing we need of forgiveness and of connection and relationship with you. And Father, where we have lost track of that because there's something else that promises a better salvation and, we've, and our mind and our daily activities have gotten attuned to that. Father, help us to cut that out and choose different activities that attune our mind and our heart to how or every need that we have is met in you. And Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.